First of all, welcome to this episode of the Mary Trump Show Strategy Sessions, um, where you're witnessing in real time how nervous I am because I have put together this uh, panel to end all panels. Not that this is the end of the panels, but holy cow, what a panel. Um, so it left me briefly awestruck, shall we say. Um, <laughs> So this is going to go down in history as one of my finest moments in broadcasting. Um, but I want to start here. We are 98 days out from the 2022 midterm elections. Yep, that's double digit territory. And uh, I think it's safe to say that we are not in an era where it's politics as usual. Uh, in the past, we've spoken here about um, what we can do you know, what we need to do to win in November. But I think it's time to shift gears and start talking about what is not just what's at stake, but what we need to understand to help people make decisions that will um, first uh, enable American democracy and um, communicate what, the issues facing us right now mean. So um, let's start with Alito's Dobbs decision. I think the only thing missing from it was a reference to the Malleus Maleficarum. It's seriously, uh, it's medieval in its jurisprudence, it's medieval in its cruelty, it's medieval in its ignorance of the history of reproductive justice or lack thereof in America. Um, and of course, that includes, but of course, it's limited to the egregiousness of things like comparing abortion to enslavement, which uh, Justice Clarence Thomas often, often does. So um, I'd like to start off today uh, with Dorothy Roberts, a professor of Africana Studies, Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the author of Killing the Black Body and Torn Apart, uh, Dorothy, thank you so much uh, for being here today. Um, I want to start with you because as you've written, we're looking at an unbroken line that extends from the days when enslavers totally controlled Black women's fertility, or tried to, to current policies that seek to reduce Black women's fertility, period. Uh, you know, and this is information that gets completely left out of the conversation when we narrow uh, the issue to the idea of choice, which by definition aligns racial justice. That's right. So uh, picking up from your last point about choice, the focus on choice privileges people who have the social opportunities, the money, the value in our society to make those choices. And it leaves out all the people who don't because of racism and poverty, uh, classism, hatred of the poor, hatred of people with disabilities. You know, we could just look at the history of reproductive policies in the United States and see that many people, because of these social 
hierarchies and inequities haven't been able to make choices. So uh, that's why it's important to have a framework of reproductive justice that attends to all the kinds of social and political and economic structures that determine people's ability to live free reproductive lives. And your other point is important as well about the almost seamless trajectory. Uh, of course, these types of oppressions transform and morph over time as they as the politics changes, but the fundamental idea of controlling someone's reproductive body and life, uh, we can look back to enslavement of Black people and especially the exploitation of Black women's reproductive labor and the authority that white enslavers had over their bodies and their uh, and their lives and how that was intertwined. This is another important aspect of understanding reproductive justice that reproductive autonomy is, con is connected to your freedom over your entire life. And so we're talking about deep life issues uh, that are related to the state's power to compel people to have uh, birth, to have birth or to compel them to continue a pregnancy. Uh, and so that is, I think, essential for people to grasp this history and also to understand that Justice Alito and Thomas and the others have completely distorted. You know, they've not just ignored the history of compelled pregnancy and other ways of controlling reproduction. Of course, for most of the 20th century, Black women's childbearing has been devalued and, and uh, Black women have been subjected to sterilization abuse and punishment for pregnancy outcomes, which again, we have to connect to forced pregnancy in policies today, you know, to understand the depths of the atrocity of the Dobbs decision, you need to grasp all of these connections and looking to history helps to do that and helps to discredit this just absolute lie that the Alito majority opinion issues about the you know, the, the meaning of the 14th Amendment, for example, which was enacted to end these kinds of denials of freedom against enslaved people, and also the distortion that Thomas has, has indicated in prior decisions. I know Professor Murray has written about this, uh, uh, suggesting that abortion is a form of genocide against Black people. And this has been the part of the anti-abortion campaign, again, exploiting Black women uh, to claim that our seeking abortions is perpetrating a genocide against our own communities. Every part of that is false. You know, abortion was never part of eugenics. It was sterilization was the tool of eugenesis. And abortion, is a the, the ability to get an abortion is 
is, a, is, is a, an important part of a free life. It's the opposite. Compelled pregnancy is the, 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 what, the analog to oppression and, uh, and, and to force deaths because, and I know I'm bringing a lot of things in here, but because what the, the bans on abortion do are to increase the risks of pregnancy, to put pregnant people at risk of death, literally, literally, uh, where doctors now have to decide, this is already going on, where doctors are telling people, I can't give you life <laughs> uh, protecting, life-saving medical care because I might be subjected to prosecution. You know, what kind of barbaric society is this creating? Uh, and, you know, we could also get into how it's creating a, a police state where we're being called on to turn in people seeking abortions and those helping them. Again, literally, you know, this also has its comparisons to the slavery era where people had to flee free states, I'm sorry, slave states to free states as people are now fleeing forced birth states to free states. And the fugitive slave laws are, the similar kinds of laws are being enacted now to go after those who would help people seeking abortions. I mean, you know, I've probably named 10 different ways in which this decision throws us back to the time of slavery. And not to say it's exactly the same, but to say that the foundation of the denial of freedom and humanity and the way in which it will have a particular type of injury to Black women uh, is essential, I think, to understand. Uh, but, but it will make our entire society more brutal, more of a police state, more of an inhumane society for everybody. And I think those are messages, you know, I, I thought you asked a great question at the beginning. What do people have to understand? They have to understand the depths of how atrocious this decision is and understand that we need a movement like we never had before. I mean, this is sometimes people ask, is there a silver lining here? If there's a silver lining, it's now understanding that the reproductive rights movement we had, you know, thank goodness we had one, but it was not enough. The frameworks were not right. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the advocacy did not plumb the depths of the inhumanity and the racism and white supremacy behind bans on abortion and their connection to other aspects of reproductive injustice, like forced sterilization, criminalization of pregnancy. I think now that 
we understand better those connections and understand better that this is a question literally of life and death, literally of freedom you know, versus a police state that uh, it's clearer, I think, that the movement needs, a, a, it needs the framework of justice and not choice. So I'll end there. I've been going on for a long time and um, I'd love to, of course, uh, hear what these other brilliant people have to say. And um, and also, I'm, I think maybe Mary gave me so much time because I have to jump off at 12.30. So sorry about that as well. But, uh, I, I gave you so much time I, because you're you, but that's okay. Well, <laughs> also, you're, you are leaving early. That's why I started with you. But I, I think what you just did was lay out very clearly um, one of the problems we face because this issue contains multitudes. It's so complex. It, it is so far reaching uh, in its impact that I think it is difficult for people to take it in and make sense of it, uh, make sense of it, especially again, since the narrative driven by white feminism has been choice. It's about choice. And that puts us at a, a serious disadvantage. Um, so uh, Melissa Murray, a professor of law at New York University, I, I want I know you've written a lot uh, recently about uh, the history of sterilization, which, which uh, Dorothy touched upon. And I think that gets lost also in the conversation because um, the history of uh, this conversation is always, again, it's about choice. It's about um, whether or not to be pregnant. And it totally not just uh, elides the history of uh, sterilization, uh, which as, as you've pointed out in the twenties, it was, it targeted poor white people too, but that shifted dramatically uh, during the civil rights movement. But it, we totally lose the idea that uh, reproductive justice is also about the ability to maintain bodily autonomy, have children or not have children, and parent our children in a way that is safe and that uh, you know improves the, the strength uh, and sustainability of our families and communities. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And thanks for having me, Mary. And I actually didn't realize I was going to be in such star-studded company. So this was a real surprise and a treat to log on here and find so many friends and um, fellow co-travelers. Now, I'm not I'm not Chris Evans, but uh, you know, I'd rather be among you guys. So no offense, Chris. I mean, but... this this assembly really gives the best Chris a run for his money. <laughs> Uh, but I think a lot of this goes back to the point that Dorothy made. And, you know, if you take the Dobbs opinion at its word, according to Justice Alito and the majority, Roe versus Wade was a constitutional apostasy because the right to an abortion is not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution and is not deeply rooted in the history or traditions of this country. I think that's false. And I think it relies on a history that is selective and itinerant and I think we on the progressive side have actually ceded too much ground in saying, oh, yes, it's unenumerated. We right. fail to present and, and, and to emphasize exactly what Dorothy said. 
the whole question of liberty that's enshrined in the 14th Amendment proceeds from an abolitionist ethic that was intent on not only abolishing the institution of slavery in 1868, but also ridding this country of all of the vestiges that distinguished enslavement from freedom. And among those indicia of enslavement were the fact that you didn't have access to civil marriage. You lacked control over your children. Your children could be sold away from you at any time. Um, the most obvious indicia is the absence of bodily autonomy, but also critical is not simply the absence of bodily autonomy in terms of your labor, but actually in terms of your reproductive labor. And it was very well known during the period preceding the Civil War, all through it, and during the period where they were debating the Reconstruction Amendments, that one of the chief characteristics of slavery was the fact that Black women were constantly predated upon as sexual playthings, like they were constantly in danger of sexual coercion. So, and their reproduction, as Dorothy said, was used to perpetuate the institution of slavery. And so when we say that this is an unenumerated right, we essentially efface the entire abolitionist logic that undergirded the Reconstruction Amendments and the 14th Amendment. So this is ground that we should not see willingly. Um, does it specifically say there's a right to abortion in the 14th Amendment? No, but this question of liberty was understood by everyone who was talking about the 14th Amendment, everyone who was ratifying it, to encompass all of these things that distinguished enslavement from freedom and to actually vest those who had formerly been enslaved with the conditions of liberty. And that's what liberty meant, to have control over this. And so that's a history that's utterly absent in this opinion. And instead, what we have is a sort of cobbled together fake history uh, that Justice Thomas has been the lead steward of, but Justice Alito picks up and it's presented in footnote 41, where, you know, when they talk about race and history in the Civil War, it's to emphasize this idea that somehow reproductive rights are associated with the eugenics movement and Margaret Sanger and her work with the eugenics and movement. And it's true, Margaret Sanger did work with eugenicists, but she was not a proponent of abortion. She actually despised abortion as what she called an unnecessary intervention. Uh, she was interested in expanding access to birth control. She very much believed that those who were poor and on the margins needed access to birth control because the prospect of two large families actually damned them to a life of poverty and destitution. And she thought women should have other choices beyond that. Um, her interest in the eugenics movement was, I think, related to population control. And that's something I think the birth control movement has to wrestle with. But this idea that there is some unbroken line between Margaret Sanger abortion and what we see today and the fact that there's a higher incidence of abortion among Black women is absolutely un just untethered from reality. Like African-American women seek abortions for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that we live in a society where institutional racism is still a very real thing, where uneven employment and educational prospects um, make it very difficult for certain groups to move ahead. Uh, it doesn't take into account the fact that many of the women, in fact, the majority of women who seek abortions are already mothers and they are making a choice that for their existing families makes sense for them. And, you know, I, I think we hear a lot from the anti-choice movement about how we are basically saying anyone who is born into poverty shouldn't be allowed to live. I don't think that's what people are saying at all. I think we are simply recognizing that this question of reproductive justice, of liberty, 
is about raising your children in conditions of security and safety. And that includes economic security. And when we live in a society where the social safety net is absolutely in tatters and we depend on the family to essentially privatize the needs of all of those who aren't able to provide for themselves, it's very difficult for people to make this decision in a vacuum. They are thinking about their background defaults and choices, and they may make a very different choice than what you might make, but that's a choice informed by their circumstances. And I think part of respecting this question of bodily autonomy is, is respecting the fact that we're not all coming from the same place. Um, black women have the highest rates of maternal mortality in this country. That's something you don't hear about in this opinion at all. Um, we are consigned to raise our children in conditions that have unsafety, and Dorothy's exactly right. Reproductive rights and reproductive justice are two different things. And reproductive justice is not just about control over your body. It's about whether or not your bodies are subject to disproportionate levels of state violence, um, whether you are going to be able to raise your children in conditions where they're not going to be gunned down while they're playing. I mean, it, people lose sight of the fact that day before the Dobbs opinion was announced, this court, in the same breath as which they said that they were turning this to the states, actually struck down New York state's efforts to limit the spate of gun violence within that state. So, I mean, this is the entire logic of this opinion is itinerant and selective, but this entire court has been itinerant and selective about the constitutional principles it's chosen to uphold. So I'll stop there. I think this is a great conversation to have. I think it's important for progressives not to cede ground on some of these core questions. Um, liberty is in the Constitution and liberty is what this question is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there is so much that doesn't get discussed. Um between the abject failure of the government to provide uh, for children uh, by denying universal health care, child care, paid maternity leave, and basically anything else that could mitigate the high costs of being pregnant. But we also don't talk about pregnancy and the dangers inherent in being pregnant in this society anyway, uh, how expensive it is, and, and particularly, obviously, uh, for the most vulnerable uh, among us. Kimberly Atkins-Store, hi. Uh, I, I want to turn to you and uh, journalist and also co-host of Sisters-in-Law podcast, the excellent Sisters-in-Law podcast, I have to say. Um, I, I'm really, one of, one of the things that I don't even think we've gotten to yet is the, the role of dangerous rhetoric and misinformation that accompanies this uh this issue uh i mean we're we're now living in a world where people who are in elected office are telling us that you know 10 year olds who are in quote-unquote relationships with their rapists romanticize that relationship or that 13 year olds do phenomenal job as mother jobs as mothers because even they know even a 13-year-old or a 10-year-old rape victim knows not to get an abortion because there's a life inside her. I mean, the the the, the breathtaking uh, horror of that, uh, yeah. which 
just, I mean, one of the reasons it's so incredibly dangerous because these are people in power that other people look to. And if your state rep or your congressperson or your senator or your governor is saying things like this, you're going to think that they're, they're onto something because why would they lie? Yeah. And they're going to parrot it and they're going to use that to inform their choices. It, it is really dangerous. I mean, I co-sign everything that everyone has said so far because all of those points are so important and they are leading up to this one. I mean, even the very idea of choice, let's even talk about the privileged people, right? Because I think one reason this was allowed to happen that people were, um, that groups were able to fund and push for the election of politicians who would uh, appoint judges who would lead to ultimately the end of Roe was I think in the back of a lot of privileged people, privileged women's minds was that even if Roe v. Wade were overturned, they would know that they and their loved ones would still have access to an abortion. Well, again, we're talking about the issue that it doesn't involve choice. I don't think listening to that rhetoric, rhetoric, they realize if they had a pregnancy complication, and I don't care if you're the richest person on earth with a private plane, if you're in the hospital and you're bleeding out, you are going to be affected by this. It will affect your health too. Right. That this is involving health care, that this isn't just an idea of choice. It's this false, um, and we've always had these tropes, right? These this false trope that people, this is about irresponsible unmarried women who are using abortion as birth control and being irresponsible. And that's never what this is about. One thing that this is about, I want to get back to a moment to the issue of economics, lest anyone think that the very important discussion we had about the enslavement of Black people in America was something about what was going on in the past. Do not think for a moment that part of the reason for a push to abolish abortion in states is the understanding among the ruling class, that in order to keep that economic system with the ruling class, you need a, a, a class of low wage, low uh, opportunity folks to do the labor that others don't want to do. And this is one reason why uh, the, the ability to control one's reproduction is still happening in 2022. That's why it was part uh, and parcel of the enslavement, of the institution of slavery, because they needed that labor. The economics of, of capitalism still needs that labor, <laughs> and they want it to be a specific num uh, number of people. So that footnote 41 um, that we talked about was a real gaslight, because first of all, uh, Justice Alito never once mentions Black women. He's talking about children as if they come out of incubators. Uh, but what this is really a, is about is ensuring that there will always be a class, an underclass of uh, a, a, a socioeconomic underclass of people to undergird our capitalist society, which is really um, something that everybody needs to have front of mind when we're talking about actuality, actual information, that that is a part of this. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to have a lot of, and also talk about information and misinformation. When you're getting your information about reproductive rights, about abortion, about anything involving uh, reproduction at all, I would like to ask every lawmaker who is passing these laws to diagram a uterus, like to, to <laughs> locate an ovary on a, a biological diagram before you tell me, before you tell me that you are qualified to make laws about how this happens, you explain to me what 
complications are. You explained to me what endometriosis is. You explained to me what ectopic pre pregnancy is. You explained to me all of that before you even get in the room to write these laws. But of course, these people are not that. They're usually men. And they're usually people who have never been in a position that we've been talking about. So I'll stop there because I, you know, I want to hear what everyone else has to say. But I think on top of what we've already heard, those are some important considerations. Yeah. And and we will get back to this because I think there, you know, uh, there was the, the Turner Way study, which looked at, um, I think it was 1,100 women over five years who those were denied abortion services and those who were able to get abortions. And it just completely blows out of the water the misinformation women and, and men have been fed about uh, abortion and, and how it affects uh, women who are able to choose to have one and uh, family planning and, and all sorts of things. I think what, one of the things that's so glaringly awful about the many awful things about uh, what's happening is that it is so clearly, as you said to me earlier, theology dressed up as fake secularism, but it's a very specific theology. We're talking about fundamental fundamentalist Catholicism and Christianity here. And it's um, it makes those of us who do not subscribe to these beliefs um, at an even greater disadvantage because, again, they're throwing out uh, the parts of the First Amendment that they don't like. Yeah, so first of all, I just want to add my voice to the people who are gobsmacked by this um, little company. This is extraordinary. This is, is such an honor. Um, and I want to lift up just two things that have been said um, before I answer the theology question. One is, I think, Melissa's really important point, which is we should have been talking like this for 15 years. I mean, we've really blown it by not um, normalizing this conversation as a meaningful conversation about liberty and the nature of the 13th and 14th Amendment. We just, uh, I think everyone on this screen could concede that if you watch the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings, it seemed as though nobody, nobody on any side of the aisle could mount a defense for substantive due process and the reconstruction amendments and what liberty means. And I think it just breaks my heart a little bit that we are now having this conversation uh, way, 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 way too late in some sense uh, to inform the public discourse. Uh, the other thing I just wanna lift up is, is something that I think uh, both uh, Kim and Dorothy are saying, which is we've tilted really quickly into a world that is not about liberty anymore and bodily autonomy, but about criminalizing women's bodies, criminalizing pregnancy. And I'm not entirely sure that having a conversation just about choice or liberty gets to, and this is where Dorothy's work is, is so singularly important, but gets to the long, long history of, you know, criminalizing some bodies, some uh, women's bodies and not others. And I really think that to not center here, that we are already in a moment where a woman was uh, charged in Texas for endangering her pregnancy. A woman is in jail in Oklahoma for fetal endangerment. Like that's the road we're on now. And so I just, this is just my sort of meta point about this locution of choice 
that we are way, way, way past the moment of talking about choice because mm -hmm. now we're into a moment of criminality. And yep. that happened in the blink of an eye. And I think it's just really essential to understand as so many of the folks on this uh, call have already said that that is gonna fall heaviest on women of color and young women and uh, you know, pregnant people around the country who are most vulnerable. So uh, that's kind of that point. And I just wanna lift it up because I think it's implicit in what a lot of folks have said. Just as, this, as to this question, Mary, of theology, if anyone had any doubt that this is fundamentally a theological conversation, please listen to Sam Alito's speech that he gave in Rome, where he, you know, in the face of having the ability to just take the win and be quiet for a few weeks, thought he would fly to Rome and spike the football, right? Just make absolutely explicit and express uh, the claim that, you know, we are living in a moment of theocracy, of express theocracy, of stated theocracy, and that anyone who doesn't agree with that theocratic worldview is somehow a lesser moral being uh, who needs to be vanquished and educated. So Linda Greenhouse had an amazing piece this week in the New York Times where she essentially made the point you made in your question, Mary. You know, we have to class Dobbs as a religion case and to fail to do so is to yep. fail to talk about what really happened. But I think that if you go through and you pick out throughout the Dobbs opinion, all the language of you know potential fetal personhood, potential fetal life, uh, we are looking at a Supreme Court that is gunning for, I think, a personhood uh, uh, amendment, personhood protection, gunning for the idea uh, that, that you uh, surfaced earlier about life beginning at conception. The fact that Justice Alito has infinite solicitude for that religious theory, which is, by the way, I think you said this, not all religions, it is absolutely a minoritarian religious view, and that we are laying down tracks to get to a place where life begins at conception, and that we are talking about that as though that is a serious, scientific, or cultural program that is not, that is a minority theological viewpoint that is getting absolutely, because I think, as you said, we're not talking about it through the lens of religion. We're talking about it as though it's a neutral constitutional principle that is getting grafted onto a debate that it has no place under the first amendment being in the first place. Right. And can I just can I just interject in there? It's like yeah, watch that space because it's not yeah. just uh, reproductive uh, access in this space. This is the the striking down of Roe and the evisceration of the establishment clause happening at the same time is not by accident. This is going to come for a host of other rights, and there will be pegged um, any pushback against it will be pegged as uh, as discrimination based on religion in a really heinous way. So watch that space. Yeah. And listen, the idea of neutrality is total bullshit anyway. You know, it, it just completely advantages those in power, um, which obviously historically is white men and then uh, white women sharing in white privilege. But now it's tilting back towards white men with the complicity of a lot of white women because they think their whiteness is going to protect them somehow. But um, Amani, now that thankfully we can finally hear you, I'm just going to keep compounding the question that I'm asking you. Uh, I think Dorothy was speaking earlier and everybody else has sort of touched on it. The abject cruelty 
of what this decision does, but also um, how cruel a country we live in. And this has always been the case, obviously. Uh, you know, it's never put this way. And of course, that's because um, largely at this point, Republicans don't want to teach our children American history. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to teach them some uh, sanitized propaganda about how great America has always been. But, you know, the, the, the American South was a closed fascist state for 100 years. Um, and I, I, again, getting back to the States, I worry, um, about what is going to happen and be allowed to happen and be sanctioned, uh, by law and by this court. Now, of course, what this decision did was throw the issue back to the States, which is problematic enough. And, and, you know, the suggestion of course, being that this, this is not an unenumerated right that is covered by the constitution, but, I don't at all for a second think that that means that uh, if 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 the Senate is able to pass um, a law protecting uh, women's rights, that this this court, which does not care about hypocrisy or legacy, will just overturn that, too. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I think I'm online. I got, you can hear me. Hooray. This is so exciting. Is very exciting. I should have just gone low tech from the beginning. Um, I did want to go back to what uh, Melissa was saying about how the opinion was itinerant and selective and how the court is itinerant and selective. And I think we just from a legal perspective, we can't forget that the way that this case got to the court was crap. Right. I mean, we had a situation where Mississippi asked this court, can you please tell us if our 15 week abortion ban is is constitutional under current law, under Roe and Casey? And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Amy Coney Barrett was nominated, appointed and confirmed in the span of like a week and a half. And then suddenly when Mississippi's merits brief was due right in their cert petition, they said under current law, is this cool? Their merits brief said just kidding, we're switching our ask and we want you to go ahead and just overturn Roe and Casey. And that's just a very unusual thing to do. I think most litigators in the Supreme Court understand that if you're asking the court to overturn precedent, particularly if you're asking the court to, for the first time, strip a constitutional right away from people or right upon which millions of people have relied, whether it's to decide whether or not to take a job, whether or not to marry a person, whether or not to sneak a quick shag in a club. Like people were relying on this decision. And the way that Alito talks about that reliance, he, he might as well have said, excuse my language, bitches be crazy. I mean, he basically said it's it's too intangible. And he said something about the the something about the musings of the national psyche as if as if it was a trifle, as if it as if he had just he had done nothing at all. And so I think that that level of of um, just anger and meanness, his opinion was so mean for that to come on the heels of them completely ignoring every single every single Supreme Court institutional norm that would have told them to not take the case in the first place. Right. Because there was no circuit split as much as they wanted to make it seem like the undue burden standard in Casey was so confusing. And now the courts don't know what to do. The courts have been doing that work. They had been applying the undue burden test. They'd just been doing it in a way that that anti-choicers kept losing. Right. I mean, how many times did Texas try to ban abortion? They kept losing. How many millions of dollars in fees did they have to pay to Center for Reproductive Rights and Planned Parenthood because they kept losing? So this idea that this court is any way legitimate at all, I think we need to start from 
from a discussion of the absolute illegitimacy of this court, particularly given the fact, as Melissa said, you know, they said, oh, we have to, the, the New York isn't able to handle this issue of gun control, but now, the, but now the courts and the federal governments aren't able to handle this issue of reproductive rights. It doesn't make any sense. And I see Melissa raising her finger, so I'm going to see to her. <laughs> You're muted. I, I just wanted to interject to just, you know, sort of put some political context around this. Um, you know, there was a lot made of the fact in 2020 that the Republican Party did not actually put forth a national platform for their presidential candidate. They simply recycled what they had used in 2016. And, you know, people talked about that and it was really you know, a party of no ideas. I think that was not the way to read that particular incident um, as the Republicans don't have ideas. I think they just had ideas that did not need to be channeled into federal politics to be instantiated, right? So, you know, for years instead, what we saw was the Republican Party in red states consolidating power in state legislatures, like the state legislature in Texas that passed SB8, the absolutely facocta bounty hunter law that essentially allowed abortion to be outlawed in that state even before the Dobbs opinion. Right. So they've consolidated authority in red states, in state legislatures and in blue states, they've captured the federal judiciary. Right. So they basically used these two different institutions that Democrats literally were not thinking about at all, state legislatures and the courts. And they consolidated power in both of them to the point where now Congress is kind of irrelevant for them, like they could take it or leave it. Um, you know, if they win control of Congress in 2022 and then win the presidency in 2024, guarantee there will be a federal ban on abortion. But for now, they don't need federal politics because they have captured the state legislatures, they've captured the judiciary, and they can basically advance a politics of minoritarian interests over majority will and when and, and they can basically talk about these minoritarian interests as though the rest of us don't matter right i mean that's the thing that's so interesting to me they talk about casey as though casey just came out of left field casey was the compromise mm -hmm. right. he didn't allow right. unfettered access to abortion it was still hard as hell to get an abortion after casey Casey was the compromise that gave states the authority to legislate in favor of potential life while also recognizing that there might be some interest that a pregnant woman or a pregnant person might have in the nature of that pregnancy. And, you know, they just sort of just took this all like there is no compromise. That's the bottom line coming out of this opinion. Yep. Don't need to compromise. They've consolidated power where it matters such that they don't need to compromise with the rest of us. And the rest of us is a lot of us. Mm. That's, that's and right. I think going, you know, I think that's such a key point, this part about consolidating power, because that's something that I think Democrats and leftists have not been very good at, particularly at the local level. It seems like every four years, there's a new shiny candidate and everyone backs that shiny candidate. And in the interim, people are asleep, whereas Republicans are never asleep. But to, to talk about consolidating power and to talk about the way all of this came about and I had this conversation with Ellie Mistal last week, is that we have to talk about voting rights. We have to talk about the way that they had to eviscerate voting rights first before right. they could do any of this other stuff, right? Amani, can we just, sorry, can we just put sure. that on hold for one second because Dorothy has to leave in a couple of minutes and I sure, just sure. want to make sure, see if she has any last words. And then actually Danielle needs to leave soon too. So I want to get her in. 
Yeah. So yeah, I'm sorry. I've just been totally enthralled by this conversation. I should have jumped off already, but I'll just say in response to what others have said, just three things that occur to me. One is that Black women have been arrested and incarcerated for their pregnancy outcomes since the late 1980s. Uh, that's my book, Killing the Black Body. A central part of that was opposing those prosecutions and pointing out that they were um, should have been seen as unconstitutional. So we've had a warning about this criminalization of pregnancy for almost, well, for 30 years now. Uh, the other is that Black women's children have been taken from them and put in foster care. That's the subject of my new book, Torn Apart, uh, for uh, a big part of the 20th century. Again, going back to enslavement and family separation, but it hasn't come up yet the way in which the justices have pretended and anti-abortion advocates have been pretending that adoption is going to be the answer to this. Uh, <laughs> more and more children are going to be taken from their families because their uh, mothers were forced to have children and they're going to be put into a terrible foster care system, which has horrible outcomes uh, and adoption, this idea of saving black children, uh, which is also very popular among right-wing Christian evangelicals uh, to tie in Dahlia's points uh, is extremely dangerous and is intensified by Dobbs. And then finally, uh, the just the point that in, in terms of healthcare and the relation to healthcare, that the states that have the worst bans, the most restrictive abortion laws are the very ones with the worst healthcare, the highest maternal right. mortality rates, the highest infant mortality rates, the least supports for families, the worst healthcare systems. And that just uh, is more evidence of the health crisis that's going to uh, be inflicted on the whole nation. Uh, by this decision. So I'm, I'm going to hop off. It's really been great to be in conversation with these luminaries. Uh, to thank you so much for inviting me, Mary, and uh, take care, everybody. Thank you so much. That was Bye -bye. awesome. And Bye -bye. read both of her books. They're <laughs> brilliant. Um, so, uh, Danielle, I wanted to uh, kind of stay there. Uh, I believe, yes, Justice Sonia Sotomayor in her dissent said the only thing that has changed is the composition of this court. So it is just another example of, of how little faith anybody should have in the Supreme Court. And, you know, we, we can talk about how, how diligent the Republicans have been for four decades and how, how much the Democrats have taken certain rights for granted, just as I think many of us have taken democracy for granted, and here we are. Um, but let's let's assume those are givens. Uh, what do, how do we get across to people just how bad I think we're talking about, as, as Clarence Thomas made clear, the right to privacy is on is on the chopping block. Yeah, I, you know, I, I spend a, a lot of time trying to enrage people so that they understand <laughs> that, you know, everything Mission that accomplished. you, 
Thank you. Everything that you have thought was going to, you know, be codified law, every every which way that you thought that your whiteness, your wealth was going to save you is not where we are anymore. And the and I think, you know, the question that I asked the other day in a video that I did is, you know, why aren't people in the streets in the ways, you know, that we see in other countries? And I mean, like a just how about this? How about I'm not working anymore. How about like, you can't rely on my labor and my back anymore because you are taking away every bit of my rights. And I know that people will say, well, that's a very privileged place to come from. We have lost pretty much every single privilege that we, that we believe that we had. Bodily autonomy being the key to all of that. We have, as, as, as folks have said, seeded conversations about liberty and justice and freedom to the right, right? It's it's them that wraps themselves in an old Navy friggin' flag t-shirt and they believe that they are the patriots. And we have allowed them to do that, right? Because there has been no considerable pushback as to what it actually means to live in a free country. We have t-shirts when we're talking about, oh, you know, black people in 2020 were in the streets in the midst of a pandemic before a vaccine saying, don't kill me, I have a right to exist, wearing shirts that say free-ish because we have never been free. And so I feel like when we have these conversations about you know, these, these, these rights that are being taken away, for too many people that look like me and love like me, those rights were never a given to begin with. So the conversation that we're really having is about, will white women wake the fuck up? Right. Like, will they come? Will will they open up their eyes and recognize that their white men are turning them into incubators because that is how they have seen them since the beginning of time. And so if you believe that your power is by proximity to the men in your life and the men in your life are saying to you that you are just here for my pleasure, my desire and my control, and then you continue to go along with that. Right. Like, I, I don't know who we're trying to wake up because black women go to the polls. Right. People of color go to the polls. Young people go to the polls. It's white women that have been voting alongside white men who have told them that they are nothing more than property. Right. Uh, and a host body. So it, it's it's me at this point, which is like, what is it going to take? I think that it's going to take the absolute destruction of our democracy, then people to pick up their heads out of the sand and stop pretending that like all is going to be okay because you still have Netflix, Hulu, and like you you seemingly can walk out of your door without being without being killed because you're a white woman, right? Like yep. I think that everything is going to have to be stripped away in order for people, white women in particular, to wake up and recognize, oh wow, wait a minute. You mean I'm not safe anymore? You mean they're not just gonna fly me to the neighboring state where I can where I can have this procedure done? Like, oh, you mean that it isn't just the the criminality of, of blackness and black women, right? That actually they are coming for me. So I'm like, what I would love is for everybody just to start telling the fucking truth. I would love yep. for us to stop mincing words and stop pretending that there is some nuance to be had. The Supreme Court is racist. Right. Mitch McConnell was allowed to steal seats. No one pushed back. No one took him or or Trump, the Trump administration to the court. Right. Like we just all allowed this to happen and said, you know, we'll get him next election. Mm -hmm. Guess what? We've run out of elections. <clears throat> 
Yeah, we have. Uh, this is, I believe, the the most important and potentially the last free and fair election of our lifetime. And, you know, th that is part of the, the broader issue uh, that links up to uh, voting rights. But I, I, I want to go to Jen first because she hasn't had a chance to talk first. And I think it would be important to end on the broader discussion. Uh, so, Jen, I want to talk to you about some health care issues. But I also just quickly want to interject that um, it is a truly American thing that uh, people need, many people, especially white women, seem only to vote inter uh, if you engage their self-interest. And uh, it also seems to be very American for uh, particularly the Democratic Party totally to take advantage of its base and to take its base for granted and be perfectly comfortable saying, you know, just wait four more years. They do this to people, black people, people of color and uh, to LGBTQ, especially trans people these days. So, uh, you know, we have we have a lot of work to do. Let's put it that way. So, Jen, though, when when uh, we're talking about this issue in terms of Healthcare, and I think that's one of the massive um, missteps that that happened. We allowed abortion to be taken out of the realm of healthcare, and it became a social issue. So we're in a situation now where legislators and uh, jurists are making medical decisions for people, while doctors are just sitting there not knowing what to do. Um, so. You know, they're also trying to muddy the waters suddenly by saying, well, you know, if you if you use a procedure on an ectopic pregnancy or a miscarriage, it's not really abortion. So thanks, Mary. And I'm going to quickly echo. I am not worthy to be here um, before I answer the medical sort of reproductive issues. I want to address something Daniel said, because we haven't explicitly talked about white womanhood. Right. Um, it's on the, and I, and I just want to step back and say one piece of it around, around pregnancy, forced birth, rape, you can't ignore the white womanhood piece, right? And so we get to this idea of one way I think white women are going to wake up. And I'm speaking generally, not, not obviously all white women, but gen, generally speaking is around rape. Because this idea, you know, we think about white women being raped, regardless of who the stereotypical rapist is, there's always been thought that, well, there'll be an exception for rape. Now white women are hearing, well, there won't. You'll be forced to carry your rapist baby, even if you are a child, right? And well, wait a second. You know, what does that say? Um, maybe for the first time, especially for college age white women, right? So let me just step back. And when we talk about the, the uh, back into this, because this is going to intersect, the, the myth around choice has been for wealthy white women in particular, I'll choose to have a baby when I want to, right? And then, but yet, what about when those choices go awry? Again, whether it's rape, whether you age out of being able to have pregnancy without assisted technology like IVF. When you have an atopic pregnancy, all these things are pretty common. And now all of a sudden, all this gets foreclosed. I'm, I'm hoping that we can draw attention to one of these areas, which is IVF. In vitro fertilization is mentioned one time in Dobbs, and it's in the dissent. And it's like a sentence that says, what about IVF? Well, what about IVF? There are right now approximately 1 million embryos frozen. Is someone going to make someone get pregnant with all those embryos? 
I mean, if those embryos or they'll have just stay frozen forever because are the people who are the doctors are the are the the women or the surrogates going to have to get pregnant with those? Also, let's talk about the reality around pregnancy. Only fifteen percent of chemical pregnancies, when the egg is fertilized and starts to implant, only fifteen percent of them result in a birth. Nat, you know, sort of the natural process. The idea that every single embryo has the potential to be a person is a flippin' lie. This court and this Republican Party is against science and reality. So that's not true. So when we already have I, I that, hate to interrupt you, Jen. I just wanted yes. to say goodbye formally. I have to I have to go have a conflict at one. But this has been amazing. Thank you for letting me be a part of this conversation. Thanks, Thank Kim. You I so appreciate it. But you know, these these issues are real issues. And if you are gonna allow people, regardless of their race, to use IVF to become pregnant then you're going to have excess embryos. You're going to have sometimes an implantation that results in a chemical pregnancy, but that it's not going to viable embryo. And those pregnant people are going to need to take medication to abort because otherwise they're going to have old fetal tissue that will interfere with their ability to become pregnant again. This is reality. And it's, these aren't one-offs. Anyway, we just lost Mar- Melissa. Anyway, so oh. I just... <laughs> that is what I have to say that we're ignoring this. And there literally are around 75,000 children born to IVF every year. And the court wants to ignore those embryos. No one, they don't believe those embryos should become life. They don't want women to control what's inside of their own bodies. That is the reality. So we can to ignore science in this respect. Yeah. Um, and again, that's, that's actually a pretty good place to, to end because this all, all of it, whether we're looking at it historically, whether we're looking at it in terms of uh, family planning or pregnancy or um, religion or healthcare, this is all about controlling women. Uh, so I think that's a pretty good message to end with because that's what we're voting for in November. We are voting for a future in which women um, retain or regain at this point, I should say, uh, their first class citizenship and have all of the rights intended upon being one. Or we live in a country in which um, for half of us, we are essentially under the control of a system that doesn't give a shit about us or our rights. Uh, it's, it's that, it's that black and white and it's, that's, it's that bleak. So, um, I, again, <laughs> clearly was overwhelmed by the greatness of this panel. Um, now I'm we never... can talk about them when they're gone. I mean, aren't we lucky? <laughs> wow. I, well, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky to have you guys too. Uh, I was kind of hoping that your presence here would make me less nervous. Clearly that that was not the case, but, or who knows, who knows what would have happened if you hadn't been. But now here. I really think it's funny, Mary, because I said to you before, you're nervous, but what's the worst thing that could happen? I was I just, I was going to say that. I was going <laughs> to say, no, I'm not gonna, I, I was talking to Jen before, just letting her know how nervous I was because of the, the brilliance of this panel. And that's exactly, she said, what's the worst that could happen? And I said, I don't know, you know, that I'll, I'll seem nervous. I'll ask stupid questions or whatever. And the worst that could happen is I said absolutely nothing for 45 seconds because I didn't even know the show had started. <laughs> awesome. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, um, 
there actually there are worse things that could have happened. So okay. the worst thing about that is that we had 45 seconds fewer to talk to these people. No, people showed up late and they missed nothing. Oh, okay, good. See, Jen is always trying to 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 find the bright the bright side of things, which I appreciate because I I'm the opposite. <laughs> no, I'm I'm not. But sometimes, especially when we're talking about stuff like this, it's really difficult to find yeah. uh, things to hang on to. But what I hang on to is um, my nerd Avengers, Gentile, Dahlia Lithwick, Daniel Moody, and the guys will be back next week. Never fear. And the fact that that we have the great good fortune of speaking to people like Dorothy Roberts, Melissa Murray, Amani Gandhi, Kim Atkins. I mean, um, this was just mind blowing uh, in the best possible way. As, as I often say, I learned so much when I speak to you guys and our guests. Uh, it is a privilege and an honor and I, I couldn't do this without you two. Uh, so thank you. And um, I will see you very soon. Okay, I didn't miss my cue this time. <laughs> uh, seriously, thank you for joining us today. That was absolutely extraordinary, um, and I was really nervous. I, I, that was not a that was not put on. I was I was extremely nervous. Uh, but um, what a panel! I hope you learned as much as I did. Um, it gave us so much to think about, but I also think that this conversation gave us a very clear roadmap of what what we need to make happen. Uh, in November 2022, in November 2024, and going forward, uh, you know, democracy is a process. It's not. It, it's not an endpoint. So we need to keep working it uh, all the time and never let up, uh, because they don't. And that's part of the reason we're in this problem. Uh, we're in this uh, pretty terrifying situation. Anyway, um, thank you again to my guests. Thank. Thanks to you for being here today. I just want to remind you that the Thursday show will happen live 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific at youtube.com slash Politicon. And my guest is going to be the great Rosie O'Donnell. So please be here for that. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Uh, and then, of course, next week, uh, next Tuesday, we will have our next strategy session this time, with the exception of me, it will be an all-male panel talking about the Dobbs decision and how men can be better allies and how how these uh, this decision and what's happening in terms of reproduction, reproductive justice also affects men. Uh, so don't miss that. Uh, that's at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, also at youtube.com slash Politicon. And while you're there, please subscribe to Politicon. It's free and like the episode. Also click on this bell because that way you will be sure to be alerted every time a new video drops. As I've mentioned before, um, I'm putting out new videos a few times a week, short shorts, just to catch up with uh, all of the insane news that keeps uh, coming our way. Uh, also, of course, you can listen to the show in podcast form uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please do give the show a five-star review because it really does help other people find the show. 
And I think that is it for today. Thank you again so much for being here. I will see you Thursday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please stay safe and be kind.